Pachango. Bienvenidas, bienvenidos, amigos y amigas. Bienvenido means well arrived, basically. Uh, you are well arrived, welcome. You have come and, and we're glad you have, so you're welcome. Uh, this episode is with Moby and Lindsay, who are the uh, co-hosts of the Moby Pod. This is one of the very few episodes that comes to you by way of some sort of publicist or professional representative. I get emails all the time, every day, three, four, five emails from publicists pitching <clears throat> guests for this podcast. Um, mostly it's people who've written books or doing some kind of online thing. Uh, you know, some course or something. And, and, you know, probably seven out of 10 of them are, you know, some sort of special diet or special, uh, like way to optimize your financial health or how to communicate, you know, how to be a great communicator. You know, it's all sort of pitched to corporate business shit. And I write back to these people and I'm like, look, I don't, you're wasting your time and mine. Like I, I don't, I, I don't have those kind of guests. And, and they say, well, what kind of guests do you have? And then it's weird. Like, I don't know. Uh, the kind of people who would never pay someone like you to pitch them to a podcast. That's the kind of guests I have. Um, but when I got this thing for Moby and Lindsay, I thought, well, they've got a podcast and they're trying to spread the word and that's cool. And, uh, I'd met Moby in the past. I think I've told that story in the podcast before. Uh, if not stay tuned, he and I talk about it in this episode. Um, and he's a cool guy. He's, he's very thoughtful and, um, he's a lot more than just some kind of famous, LA, you know, presence. He's, uh, he's an actual person, uh, beyond all that. So, uh, and I enjoyed meeting Lindsay as well and their dog whose name I forget. But, uh, if you are a paying subscriber to this podcast, you will have access to the video, uh, of our conversation. And on the video, you will see Moby and Lindsay removing a tick from their dog's ear as we're recording, which is uh, interesting. I think I cut most of that out of the audio, <laughs> maybe all of it. Uh, the videos I don't edit at all. It's just, uh, I mean, mainly because it just would take too much time. I'm really bad at that. Uh, and so you just get the raw feed on the, on the video. So you'll see the tick removal. Quite interesting. I mean, how often do you get to watch Moby remove a tick from a dog's ear? I mean, come on. If that's not bonus content, I don't know what is. I've been thinking recently um, about something. You know, it's one of these things that's both very obvious and yet 
maybe not. Uh, it's always hard to tell. Like something that's like a profound truth and utterly obvious, there's a lot of overlap there. So anyway, I was just, the things have changed here in Crestone. For about a month, it was mosquito hell. Uh, the mosquitoes came within 48 hours. It went from no problem to holy shit, I don't want to go outside, to I'm wearing a fucking head net, uh, to like, you know, going out the front door was like stepping out onto another, you know, a, a hostile planet where you had to suit up and, you know, go through an airlock or something. Uh, and then it lasted about four weeks, maybe a little more. And in the course of 48 hours, boom, it was over. They're gone. Amazing. Um, so I was thinking about that and I was sit I was standing out on the deck, I was watching the weather because the weather, you know, we're at eight thousand feet, we are in the mountains, and the weather changes so quickly. And, you know, it's kind of a monsoon vibe here. So it's like sunny in the morning, and then you see some clouds midday, and then three thirty, four o'clock suddenly there's like a big wind and it and it comes out of nowhere there's no wind there you know light breeze nice gentle all day and then suddenly late afternoon it's just like whoosh the other day we our neighbor's um uh, umbrella her shade umbrella out on her deck even though it was lashed down and tied to a weight and the umbrella was down it that wind just picked it up and there was this big red umbrella probably 300 feet in the air over us against the blue sky it was very beautiful and strange um anyway i was just thinking about this you know the way the weather comes in and and the way the animals are that you know they're they're sort of you see the seasonal thing the way the plants are changing and everything's kind of in this movement, this state of movement, because we're just immersed in this natural world. And when you spend some time in any given, um, you know, natural space and you get used to it, you start to see the changes. Um, and I was thinking about how comforting that is and how much I enjoy it but that it's not something I knew I was missing. And so I was thinking about what are the things that we're missing that we don't know we're missing? And how big of a deal is that, right? Because I think a lot of people are unhappy or or feeling a, a sort of vague sense of discontent. Something's missing, something's not quite right in my life. And a lot of people blame themselves or blame their relationship or, you know, blame their job or, or whatever, or think they need to go on a paleo diet or they need to be vegans or they need to do this and they need to do that. And, and I'm not saying that it's wrong to make those changes and make adjustments and bring your life into alignment with, you know, your morals and, and your knowledge and, and whatever, but sometimes I think that 
it's really hard to identify what it is that we're missing unless you've experienced it in the past. And, and you can say, oh, yeah, I, I miss that thing. I miss, you know, this aspect of what life was like before I moved here or took this job or got older or whatever. Um, but I think that a lot of what we're missing is very hard to identify because we've never experienced it. Or we live in a culture that discounts the value of it. And so we, it doesn't occur to us. You know, I was living in LA for years and there were a lot of things I liked and a lot of things I didn't like about LA. But if you ask me, you know, make a list of the 10 things that you don't like about living in LA, I don't think the weather would have made the list because most people look at the weather in LA and say, it's ideal. It's like nice almost every day. It's sunny, it's warm. But now that I'm in a place with lots of rapid, dramatic changes in weather and real seasonal um, uh, sort of rhythms, I realize how much I miss that. It was, it reminds me of like people have a vitamin D deficiency. Apparently most of us have vitamin D deficiencies and we don't know it. We just feel weak and listless and kind of maybe we're not sleeping that well or whatever. You know, there's nothing in our bodies or our minds that says you need vitamin D, right? It just doesn't. Maybe when you step out into the sun in the morning, it feels good on your body. That's as much specific information as you're going to get about what it is that you're missing. So anyway, for me, if, if I'm feeling that I'm missing something eh, and something isn't quite right, my go-to is what is present in our natural state that is not present in the way I'm living right now. I get asked this question all the time in interviews, right? Like, oh, okay, you've, you know, written this critique of civilization. Well, what do you suggest? What should we do? And my answer is try to integrate as many facets of a pre-civilized human life into your contemporary life as you can. And obviously you pick and choose which ones seem most valuable to you, which ones are most accessible to you, uh, which ones are least likely to offend your friends and family. But it can be as simple as, you know, light a fire in the morning instead of turning on the heater. Take the time to, to kneel down in front of your fireplace or your wood stove and crack the kindling and, you know, arrange the fire and light it and blow on it and watch it and then feel the warmth. And how does the warmth of that fire and how does the look of that fire how does that nourish your soul in a way that flipping a switch on a thermostat doesn't it could be bringing your diet into you know more of a whole foods alignment it could be reducing screen time and worrying about all the terrible shit that appears to be going down in the world but isn't affecting you locally. Uh, it could be about trying to nourish a sense of local community 
that maybe you don't have. It could be as simple as meeting your neighbors, you know, knocking on the door across the hall and saying, hey, I've been living here for a few years and I've never introduced myself. My name is Chris and here's a a plate of cookies I made. And if you ever need anything, let me know. Here's my number. Text me if I'm making too much noise, if you need a hand, whatever. Um, You know, where we live, there are a lot of old people and it gives me a lot of pleasure to help out. You know, or I saw that our neighbor got an air conditioner delivered the other day and I offered to take it up to her house. I ended up installing it and then she made me a delicious cappuccino and we sat around and talked for two hours and I found out that my neighbor is a really interesting lady. Um, Maybe I'll get her on the podcast. Her name's Royal Lynn. Really, really beautiful lady. Uh, Anyway, so if you're feeling that something's missing, my advice is look at the things that our species evolved in the presence of. Identify which of those things are not present in your current life. Community, fire, whole food, deep sleep, time under the stars, watching the sky, watching nature, dropping into a cold stream on a hot day or a cold day. These things resonate with something in us that's deeper than consciousness and can bring relief where you don't expect it. Anyway, that's that's what I think. And I'm a doctor, so you can trust me. Sort of. Not really. The last bit of nonsense I would like to impart to you before we get to the actual conversation with Moby and Lindsay is the following. This is the last week to send in your application for the Sex at Dawn retreat in Whitefish, outside of Whitefish, Montana, from August 20th to 25th. We've got a bunch of really awesome people who have already applied uh, I guess the way they do it is they take all the applications and try to get the perfect mix of people from different parts of the world coming for different reasons, uh, couples, single people, um, different ages, male, female, other, whatever. They're trying to, you know, put together the perfect fruit salad. And you are the fruit, as am I. Fruit and nut salad. There may be some greens as well. I'm not sure. But uh, last year, it was awesome. They're really wonderful people, really nice community. And we enjoyed it so much that we added another day this year. So it's going to be five days, including travel days, the 20th and the 25th. So uh, that'll give us more time to go swim in a lake and whatever you do in Montana. Anyway, uh, this is the last I will mention it, probably until we gear up to next year. So if you're free, August 20th to 25th, you got some extra cash lying around and you would like to take a step towards your community, my community, our community, uh, the kind of weirdos who listen to this podcast and give a shit what some weird dude in the mountains in Colorado who wrote a book you've heard of 12 years ago, that guy. If you're interested in meeting other people who think that's a worthwhile pursuit, I hope you'll join us in Montana. Go to budacon.com. Uh, 
B-U-D-O-K-O-N.com and look at the events and you'll see the Sex at Dawn retreat. Hope to see you there. All right. This conversation is with Moby and Lindsay. Their podcast is called The Moby Pod, I believe, which is a play on words of a pod of whales. It, it's all, it all has something to do with whales in Moby's life. Um, I'm going to play you out with a song that Moby sampled in his very famous tune called Natural Blues. Probably the first time I was aware of Moby as an artist. The song is called Trouble So Hard, sung by Vera Hall. Recorded by, was it Alan Lomax, I believe, who traveled the South. Uh, talk about a talk about somebody who brought a lot of value to the world. This guy lived in the, I think, the 20s and 30s. Um, there was Alan and the, the father. Um, the, the two of them did this work where they they recognized that there was amazing American musical heritage that was being lost in the South because there were all these amazing singers and, and musicians who had ne- who were poor and just played in, you know, local bars or, you know, they'd written songs and played songs that then got picked up by people who were more famous, Muddy Waters or whatever. Um, but the originals were still alive, but they hadn't been recorded. So um, they went down to the South with uh, big reel-to-reel recording machines and recorded as much of this uh, material as they could and tracked these people down. And um, and now the, the music still exists and people like Moby can sample it and, uh, you know, sort of modernize it. So it's a wonderful thing that they did. Um, and this is one of the fruits of their labor. Trouble so hard, Vera Hall. Thank you for supporting the podcast, and uh, thank you mostly for your attention. Sending a lot of love out to all of you, and I uh, hope you're feeling good. Ooh, Lord, ain't my trouble so hard. Ooh, Lord, ain't my trouble so hard. Don't nobody know my trouble but God. Don't nobody know my trouble but God. Went down the hill the other day. Soul got happy and stayed all day. Oh, Lord, him, trouble so hard. Oh, Lord, him, trouble so hard. Don't nobody know my trouble but God. Don't nobody know my trouble but God. Ooh, Lord, trouble so hard. Ooh, Lord, trouble so hard. Went in the room, didn't stay long. Looked on the bed and brother was dead. Ooh, Lord, trouble so hard. Ooh, Lord, trouble so hard. Don't nobody know my trouble but God. Don't nobody know my trouble but God. Ooh, Lord, trouble so hard. Ooh, Lord, 
trouble so hard. All right. Well, I'm here with Lindsay and Moby, who are cousins. Is that right? Maybe in some like back like want Mayflower say- sort of situation. <laughs> I would say yes, because I like the idea of being agreeable. And it's also <laughs> it's also altogether possible that you know somewhere in our 23 and me distant genealogy <laughs> we're related. But like as far as I know, we are friends and co-workers, but not actually biologically related though now my mission is to prove that we are somehow related right yeah okay maybe i'm mixing this up but i thought your publicist said you guys were cousins if they did that's hilarious (laughs) and it's not true but as a bit i may have them keep telling people that if that's what they're saying yeah, it reminds me it reminds me of the white stripes because there was always that thing about jack white and meg the drummer like were they brother and sister? Were they cousins? Were they married? Were they bandmates? Et cetera, et cetera. We should have them, publicists say that we are a different version of related to every different, every person we talk to. Right. Oh, okay. Like I'm your, I'm your aunt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or yeah. You're, you met at the shelter or something. It can, Ooh. it can get really intense yeah okay so if you're not cousins then what's the genesis of doing a podcast together well it goes back to the bygone spring of 2020 when the pandemic first happened and Lindsay had been working at a sort of comedy and game show tv production company and not surprisingly because all production shut down she was furloughed and we were hiking in Griffith Park one day. She was talking about how she really wanted to do work that just simply had more meaning that, you know, potentially addressed important issues. That was an extension of her beliefs and her activism. And I had had this tiny, barely functioning production company called Little Walnut. And I thought, huh, why not see if we can work on this together Because the production company's main goal is to try and use creativity and whatever platforms and resources we have to try and address issues. And then at some point, we thought, you know what? Why not start a podcast? Even though, to state the obvious, there are 18 trillion podcasts in the world. We thought, let's start another one because it's just such a, again, this is very self-evident, but such a fantastic way to both communicate with each other, communicate with other people, address issues. So that's, sorry, there's a truck going by, but that's my, that's the genesis of MobyPod. Right. I've been doing this podcast for over 10 years. Like I, I think I'm probably one of the first 500 podcasts that ever started. And I got to say, it has enriched my life incredibly. Just the, the, the quality of conversations, the fact that it provides sort of a hermetically sealed area where nobody's looking at their phone, where people are actually, I mean, you guys are looking at a phone right now, <laughs> mm-hmm. but you know what I mean? You know, I, I I very stubbornly refused to do remote recordings for the first, you know, eight years or something until COVID hit, which also forced me to really sort of 
you know, it's almost like being a locavore, you know, you just, you, you eat what's local, you meet the local people, you find the interesting stories that just happen to be in your, wherever you are. Yeah. So good luck with that. It's, it's, I can highly recommend it as a quality of life enhancement. It has been, I mean, I, we've talked about how much fun we have doing it and even getting to bring people over. Like we had Dan Butner from the blue zones come over and we got to really hang and spend some time and kind of relax into an easy conversation that went far more in depth than I think a conversation ever would have, even if we had gone to lunch with him or something, you get to go so much deeper because you set yourself up for a conversation that is meant to be more exploratory. And also, I mean, I don't know what it's like with your friends, but generally like my close friends, I think they're very smart. They're very erudite. They're very creative. But when we meet up to talk, you wouldn't know it for the most, like if, if you, you know, if someone has a vegan pizza party and we're sitting around eating, eating vegan pizza, like my friends who are geniuses are not pontificating and having long soliloquies that are representing their genius. They're talking about the last episode of succession, or they're talking about how bad the traffic was. And to your point, the wonderful thing about a podcast is you sit and you listen And you have actual, like, long, in-depth, meaningful conversations with people. And even if no one else is listening, that in and of itself, to me, makes it like a really worthy thing to spend our time doing. But also, I get to have these conversations with Moby that are so fun. And we have these, like, conversational challenges. And I get to learn more about my friend Moby than I think, than I would have in a regular conversation, you know, right. or, and I get to berate you for things publicly that I maybe wouldn't be so mad about privately, like such as your dirty teacups. Do you see this? Yeah. I, I have the I, same problem. You do too? You like a dirty teacup? I don't like it. I just find it really hard to clean deep down inside, you well, know? I have <laughs> one of the things that makes tea so healthy are the tannins in tea. Mm. And so I see my filthy brown interior teacup. It's a product of healthy tannins. And so I just gave up trying to clean them. And now it's almost like, oh, I just <laughs> um, It's the, the danger of showing the bottom of your teacup. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever see the movie Fire Walk With Me, the prequel to Twin Peaks? Oh, maybe a long time ago. Yeah. It came oh, out after, though, right? Years after. Twin Peaks. There's an opening scene with Kiefer Sutherland and Chris Isaac where it's three o'clock in the morning and they're in a diner and someone asks Kiefer Sutherland what time it is and he turns to look at his watch and pours hot coffee all over himself. Hilarious. And boy, is that funny. And <laughs> yeah, so. That's comedy. That's true comedy. <laughs> hey, yeah, uh, physical comedy. Moby, I don't know if if your publicist relayed this to you, but I actually came to one of your birthday parties many years ago. Which Uh, one? You were living in that, I think it was Marlon Brando's former castle up on the hill in Hollywood Hills. Yeah, Wolf's Lair. Wolf's Lair, right. Yeah, It it was a very strange thing. I was coming to live in LA and I was, I was coming from Portland 
I was driving down the coast and Neil Strauss, the, the writer, said he had interviewed me recently for the book he was working on, The Truth. And we got to be kind of friendly in the interview. And so anyway, he said, hey, I see from your social media, you're headed to L.A. Do you want to come to Moby's birthday party with me? And I was like, shit, yeah, this is awesome. My first day in L.A., I'm going to Moby's birthday party. This is this is starting out really well. But anyway, it was it was a really nice day. I I met some people just sitting around the pool that were just really friendly and and it was kind of an interesting thing because I had been in LA a bunch previously. I have family who live in Topanga and, and Culver City. But I'd always felt LA was like very, you know, the cliched, everyone's a striver, everyone's trying to use you. They lose interest the minute they realize they can't leverage you to advance their career or whatever. It was, you know, all those cliches seem to be true. And that day at your house, I felt like, like for the first time, I met people who weren't doing that. And I had been living in Spain for 20 years. And I remember some, I was sitting by the pool and this guy said to me, so what's, you know, what do you notice? What's different between Spain and LA? And I told him like, yeah, I always had this idea. Everyone's a striver. Everyone like, what do you do? And who's your agent? And who's this? And who's that? And I said, in Spain, no one would ever ask you what you do for a living at a party. That would be like asking how much money you have in your checking account. It's just like totally social faux pas. Mm -hmm. And he was really cool. He said, you know, the thing about the people here are like these people have done what they came here to do. They've got their agent. They've got their lawyer so they can relax. And it's a different part of L.A. that you don't see unless you, you know. Happen to get invited to Moby's birthday party. <laughs> Odd question. And it's not a leading question, but I'm curious. Did you by any chance bring me a present? I, okay. Cards on the table. I, all I knew about you was that you were a famous musician. Okay. So that wasn't, and I'm not trying to like shame you on your podcast and say, how dare you show up without a present. But <laughs> that birthday party Someone I had never met gave me a book for my birthday. And the book, I think it's called Sex at Dawn. I wrote that and book. Was that? I wrote the book. So You're I guess kidding. I did. Yeah. You wrote Sex at Dawn. Yeah. So then you did you did give me a copy of it. I guess so, yeah. <laughs> okay. So wow, you you're not kidding. You wrote that book. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to tell you about your own book for a second. It's broadly speaking, not to overgeneralize, it's about polyamory, correct? It's and, about and, human yeah. sexual evolution showing that sexual monogamy was not part of our evolutionary past. Yeah. So, okay, so I knew it. I could, I could see it. We were in the pool house and you handed me a copy of the book. And, and I put it in the bookshelf and I'm sorry to say this for about a year, I forgot it was there. And I apologize. I've since gone back and read it, but for about a year, it sat on the bookshelf. And one day someone was over and they looked at me and they said, oh, you're into polyamory. And I looked at them and said, what's that? 
And so that's Sex at Dawn, like that book, like everybody, all, that's the polyamory Bible. And I was like, I'm so embarrassed. I haven't, I've since, like I said, I since have read it, but I just thought it was so funny that for that first year until I read it, I was advertising to all my guests that I was into polyamory because of your book when I didn't even know what polyamory was. That's pretty brilliant on your part to kind of set the trap and build the community <laughs> without even people even meaning to. Did you know when you wrote that book that it would become this kind of that it would become the polyamory signal slash Bible? No. No, I had no idea. When I wrote the book, I didn't even know anyone who worked in publishing. I had no contacts. I had nothing. It was all just pure shot in the dark. What made you want to write? I mean, sorry, I'm asking you. What made you want to write that book? Why was that? What made that the thing you had to get off your chest? When I was in graduate school and I was sort of a year into doing research for my doctoral dissertation, and it was a totally different thing I was working on. I was I was developing a psychological profile of doctors who work with dying patients and in a way to predict who burns out and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. So I was working with intensive care doctors and oncologists in hospitals in Spain. And uh, but I was starting to get the the sort of understanding of myself that I if I were an oncologist, I would burn out like I was getting my boundaries weren't, were too permeable, you know? Mm -hmm. And I read a book about evolutionary psychology, which was sort of a new science at the time, using evolutionary principles to explain the functioning of the mind, not just the evolution of the body. And it was called The Moral Animal by Robert Wright. It's a brilliant book, really interesting. And it basically posited that, you know, since time immemorial, men and women have had opposing reproductive agendas where women want a man who's going to provide food and protection and so on. And men want to spread their seed as widely as possible. So there's this sort of begrudging deal where women trade fidelity for support material and, and otherwise. And I thought, oh, this makes perfect sense. At the time I was living with a stripper and uh, in San Francisco, and she had lots of friends who were really smart, outspoken, well-read women. And I was also working for a nonprofit called Women in Community Service. So it was, I was just surrounded by all these very smart women. And I started like, you know, repeating these arguments. And and they were just like, dude, that's such a Victorian phallocentric perspective. Like, we don't have sex because we want something. We have sex because we enjoy it, because it feels good. And by the way, we can have multiple orgasms and you can't. And and they sort of debunked a lot of the stuff I was saying. So I started looking into the research and and graduate was like pulling a thread on a tapestry. The whole thing started to fall apart. And mm -hmm. I realized that this vision of human sexual evolution was very political and was pushed by men with hangups, including Darwin. And so that's what I ended up writing my dissertation about. And then hmm. years later, I, I decided to turn it into a book. Well, thank you belatedly for the birthday present. <laughs> for, Dude, and I probably me. had a copy in my car and I, I was just, I showed up and at your party thinking, this is going to be like a classic famous dudes, Hollywood party with Coke and hookers and, I had like, you know, a bottle of scotch or something. 
And I got to the gate and the security guy said, uh, you can leave that in the car, referring to the, the, the scotch that I'd brought. And I thought, oh, it's catered. They don't want me to bring. <laughs> and then I came and it was like the most wholesome party, you know, like kids by the pool and, you know, vegan food. It was great. I mean, trust me, pre-sobriety, it would have been a lot different, you know. <laughs> Yeah. It would have been satiricon degeneracy. It definitely would not have been a if it was if it had been a daytime party pre sobriety. That would only be because we had been up for thirty six hours starting the day before. Yeah. So, but the, I, it's so funny because when we when we turned on the the phone and I saw you, I was like, I recognize this person, and I can see it so clearly. We were in the we were in the pool house, and you handed me that book. And yeah, Neil was there because I've known Neil since 1993 or thereabouts when he was this quintessential nerd writing for music magazines in New York. And then Lindsay, I don't know if you know Neil. Is he I mean, Neil Strauss of the game? So that's what, yeah. So he he was this, the nerdiest person I've ever met. And I say that as an incredibly nerdy person. Like he had <laughs> like polyester button-down shirts and I think even had a pocket protector <laughs> and like thinning weird hair and I say that as someone who's lost all his hair but and then he discovered the pickup artists he right. wrote an article about the pickup artists I think for Esquire and he decided to use himself as an example and so after seeing him as this nerd years later I ran into him at a bar in Hollywood and he was like five inches taller wearing a purple feather boa and like head <laughs> wraparound glasses and all, like he he had become that new person I what was what was his name oh. he reinvented i think it's like as suave or <laughs> play or something yeah and that and he be so he so everything involving the game like negging and all that stuff that's all from his book but he's changed his ways now because i recently you know i did the hoffman process yeah and he's a hoffman process guy and they have a podcast and i listened to him on the the hoffman podcast and it seems like he's really turned over a new leaf and is so, trying to like be uh kind of let that part of his life go i actually went to he had a funeral for his game alter ego that's so right. it, Hollywood Forever Cemetery, oh <laughs> Ju Julie and Donovan and Libby and I went because he was putting to rest whatever that alter ego's name was. I hope it was suave. It was something <laughs> like that. And, he, and then, you know, he got married and had a baby. I don't know what he's doing now, but like, yeah, he definitely sort of, I think, recognized that the game led to a lot of shallow stuff. Yeah. Did you read the game? I never read the game, though. Because you already had so much game? No, because I, I don't know. I just, it never crossed my mind. So, so it's interesting. Yeah. That's so. really fascinating. Yeah. Are you in Neil? Yeah. Yeah. I saw him last time I was in LA. Yeah. Neil, Neil's an interesting character because he does, you know, a lot of people say, wait, is that Neil Strauss from the game? And, you know, yeah. there's a lot of baggage that goes with that. But I have to, I lived in LA maybe five years or something. And, you know, I was pitching TV shows based on Sex at Dawn because it, it was an international bestseller and, you know, it became the Bible of this and that. 
so I sort of had I, I had an interesting LA experience. And I have to say, of of like all the people I met in LA, he was the most genuine. He was the guy mm-hmm. who returned the call, who if he said, let's go to dinner on Thursday, he showed up, he didn't cancel yeah. at the last minute. And, you know, and he's hanging out, you know, he lives in Malibu and, you know, he's moving in those circles. He's, but he, but he's genuine. He's a, he's a very sincere guy. And yeah, I, I feel like a lot of the baggage that comes with the game, like he definitely went into it, but the way he would describe it is like he was embedded journalist. It wasn't yeah. that, you know, he was really into it. it. But as as Moby says, he came from, he went on tour with like, I don't know, Motley Crue or somebody because he well, thought he, he, wrote, he, wrote, he wrote The Dirt. He wrote, you know, the Motley Crue official biography. It was Motley Crue. And he thought he'd get laid like hanging out backstage with the band and he never did. <laughs> it's just like, what do I have to do? So yeah, the first time I, I was hanging out with Neil, I was on a podcast that he he did. And I remember he said to me, like within the first 10 minutes, he said, you got laid before you were 16, didn't you? And I said, yeah, What? why was that? He said, you can always tell, like a guy who, who got laid before he was 16 is just comfortable with women. And guys who don't until they're in their 20s will never be comfortable with women. It's just always Whoa. going to remain a mystery. That's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot more of those now than I think there ever were, <laughs> would you say? Probably. I think I think there's a a problem with young men not having older men giving them honest information about how to how to be a man, how to embrace your masculinity, how to not feel that you're a toxic presence around women, yeah. you know? And I think a lot of young women are like, what's with these guys who don't know how to do anything and don't like, you know, inhabit themselves. I think there's a, and I think that's one of the reasons podcasts are really popular, you know, like Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan. A lot of these guys are sort of, you know, father figure replacements. And I think I've yeah. terrifying idea. It is a terrifying idea, but it's very true that I think <laughs> kids feel Kids feel lost and more lost now than ever, especially because the world has changed in a way where parents don't know how to guide kids through the current landscape that we're in. And I think they view these people as men who do understand what the world is now. Yeah. You know, like my dad just figured out Facebook. I think kids <laughs> need to have have parents that under that have or, or have have some sort of sense of leadership in their life that really understands what's going on in the world because everyone is so keyed in. Everyone has their finger on the pulse all the time and you need someone that's a step ahead. And for some yeah. reason, they think that those men in particular get it. Well, you know? and also they're on social media, right? So they, they're, <laughs> they're speaking through the channels that these young people are tuned into. Uh, so there's that. I mean, I don't think I understand the world any better than any other 61 year old, probably. But the fact that I, you know, come through their earbuds somehow lends legitimacy. By the way, Neil's name was Style. I just looked it up. Style. That's Style. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And the funeral was overly long and it was about 100 degrees. And that's all I remember about it. I think Except for like the absurdity of burying someone who's never actually existed but yeah <laughs> and also 
technically die. Did he just bury like the Styles clothes and stuff, the wraparound sunglasses? It was a long process. Like his dad spoke, <laughs> and the whole oh thing was it was. Everyone was asked to wear black, except it was Los Angeles in the middle of the summer, so it was a billion degrees, and it was. Yeah, I just remember having sort of like a mild case of heat stroke. Oh no! Yeah, hot hot funeral. Well, I live in a town called Crestone, Colorado, tiny little town. It's the only place in North America that has a permit for open air cremations. I'm sorry. So, yeah, they the the body is burned right out in the desert on a on a pyre. It's pretty intense. It's like like India. I'm sure it's very emotional, but is it safe and sanitary? Yeah, yeah, it is. They do it early in the morning when the air is cold, so the the hot air goes straight up. And it's actually a very moving, beautiful experience. You you know the the body's wrapped in a white shroud. You know this is the way it's done in in many parts of the world, and there's firewood all under and then they put firewood all around on the top and and the ones that I've been to the children of the deceased light the fire and then you know they speak about the the deceased person and then the friends come up and talk and it lasts an hour hour and a half and then by the time they're done talking it's over the the fire's going out and there's nothing left it's a really ashes to ashes kind of experience it feels very poetic i just redid my will and in my will i specified that i'm to be buried in the most environmentally friendly way possible at present that would be a mushroom suit you know about yeah. mushroom suits yeah yeah so i it, do you say where no i i mean ideally in a perfect world it's not legal but my, what i really like to do is just have someone throw me in the woods like okay. just like just ch <laughs> chuck me in the woods and let me be food for something else but like that's not it's i guess it's just the man and the nanny state has said it's not legal to throw corpses on the side of the road in the woods <laughs> in the dog next, park <laughs> yeah exactly just like chuck them in and like the roaches and the puppies eat you bagel would never and then well she might but so the, you know, the mushroom suit i just love the idea of like being turned back into composite organic molecules that that help the ecosystem. Yeah. Well, you guys should have Andy Weil or Paul Stamets on your podcast. They're mushroom experts. Did uh, you see Fantastic Fungi? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's really good. Have you seen them? Yeah. It's so great. Yeah. It's He's awesome. Cool. That yeah. guy. We should have him on. So Lindsay, are are you are you a musician as well? Are you guys planning like is the focus of the podcast going to be music or science well, or thing, world events? You know, it's funny. The thus far on the podcast, we have yet to speak to a musician because obviously I've been a musician for a long time. I don't have any musician friends, so my friends tend to be academics, directors, lots of writers. You know people in the animal rights world, people in the climate space. So sorry, you were, but the question wasn't for me, but I'm a loud mouth, so I was answering. Well, I will say this. I, in college, was a very skilled musical theater actress. Mm -hmm. I did <laughs> give it up upon graduation, 
but I still do really enjoy a show tune, like in a borderline obsessive, unhealthy way. But no, I don't, I don't do music myself. So I'm always learning and it's really fun to see how, because Moby knows how to do literally everything. He plays every instrument. He knows every piece of equipment to record. So like it always, it's kind of like he's a sort of magician in my eyes because I have no idea how any of that stuff works. Like we were working on, we over in January, we released a feature documentary called Punk Rock Vegan Movie that we made with the production company Little Walnut. And we would be editing and realize that we needed about 30 seconds of music that resembled a punk song from the UK in the 1970s. And Moby would go into his studio for about nine, between nine and 11 minutes <laughs> and come out with the most perfect piece of music that he just created in such a, and I'm like, you just did that? You just made that? Like it kind of blows my mind that he has that that ability contained in this body and brain so yeah it's always it's like it's like watching a magician work whenever Moby does musicy stuff but we do on the podcast we talk about his songs a lot their creation their origin stories what it was like when they came out so we get to talk a lot about his experience of his own music and also music that has affected him and also me in our lives so music is a, a topic of much discussion on the podcast but i don't know anything about how it's made unless you need me to like belt something from wicked that's really all i can do and not well (laughs) but but passionately exactly exactly mostly in my car is where that happens do you do you guys always have a guest or do you sometimes just do one-on-one yeah the idea was to create a structure where every other episode would be an episode with a guest. And so that way, because like to state the obvious, some podcasts that are 100% guest reliant, I I don't know if there's much of a reason to always listen to them if you're not that interested in the guest. Right. And so that's why we, we wanted like every episode to be sort of different and to sometimes just be ridiculous nonsense sometimes to be incredibly earnest to sometimes be science-based to sometimes just be odd idiosyncratic creativity so that way it keeps us interested and also hopefully keeps the people who are listening interested there's also so much going on in Moby's life as a musician as a creator and in the production company like there's so much constantly swirling that it's kind of nice to have the occasional opportunity to just have conversations about what's going on in Moby's world or in the world of our production company. We also started doing live, uh, I guess a few Thursdays ago, we did a live podcast where that celebrated the release of Moby's album that came out last Friday, Resound NYC, and he played a handful of songs from the album Acoustic in the Mm. room and did the full episode of the podcast there. So it's great to be able to mix it up and sometimes do the guests and sometimes be able to just do that. Yeah. Do you guys know who Rick Beato is by any chance? Does that ring a bell? His name is amazing, but I don't. Yes. Cool name. And I love, I hate it. It's almost like doing improv. Like I hate saying no, 
but no, I mean, what a cool name. And I'm now super <laughs> intrigued. If, like Rick Beato seems like someone from the 70s who would have like moved to Los Angeles to start an investment firm by day and a porn production company by night. So no, we don't <laughs> Close, very close. No, he's a he's an interesting character. I mentioned him, you know, as you guys are talking, I keep thinking of of interesting guests that you could you could get to to help promote your show. Rick Beato has a YouTube channel called What Makes This Song Great. He's got about cool. three point five million subscribers at at this point, and he's a he's a multi instrumentalist and a producer. And what he does is he takes the stem recordings from various songs and he just sort of takes them apart into their different tracks, different strands, and explains why it works, why this is such an awesome piece of music. And uh, he's really good. He's like, you know, he speaks in a way that if you're a musician, you'll be like, oh, okay, you know, he's speaking to you. But also if you're a non-musician... He simplifies it enough that you can follow most of it and you really appreciate the music much more afterwards. And he's an awesome guy. He's just a real sweet, sweet dude, too. And when so, he's not doing the YouTube channel, he has an investment company by day and a porn production company by night, right? Yeah, yeah. I think upstairs. <laughs> he's got his music downstairs. The porn's happening up in the attic. And then at some point, we have to assume he works for the CIA as well. And he might have been... Like interesting yeah 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 <laughs> I, I, i'm trying to find some connection to the beatles you know beato beatles something in there maybe he's jeffrey epstein secret love child from when <laughs> epstein yeah the, the tragic story of jeffrey epstein yeah that's what i believe so um a- speaking you, you mentioned being a nerd earlier moby and uh, i just interviewed a guy on my podcast who wrote a book about steely dan really good book and it occurred to me that Steely Dan and you have a lot in common in a sense of, you know, nerdy musicianship, lack of interest in going on tour. Obviously, they were working with different technology than you are, but I imagine there's a sort of perfectionism and a do it over and over until it's right kind of approach as opposed to, you know, a sloppy jam session. How do you feel about Steely Dan? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Steely Dan because we also have one other thing in common is I've only been to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Awards once. And it was I was the person who inducted them into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. No kidding. Yeah. (laughs) So as a result of being the person who inducts, I think whoever asked me to do it clearly thought like, oh, these nerds are clearly going to like resonate with each other. Cause at the, the one I went to like Dave Grohl inducted queen into the rock roll and kid rock inducted Aerosmith. Like, so clearly they try and pair people and I was paired with Steely Dan, which when we took our picture together made so much sense. Cause it was like, clearly none of us are getting by on our looks, you know, like, <laughs> and, but I learned so much about Steely Dan when I was doing my nerdy preparation work to induct them into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Stuff that a Steely Dan fan probably knows, but do you know who their college roommate was? I know Chevy Chase was their drummer. Yeah, Yeah, so Chevy Chase 
And it, it led me down this rabbit hole of like weird college roommates. Like, do you know Tommy Lee Jones, the actor? Do you know who his college roommate was? Oh man, I've read this somewhere, but now I don't. Al Gore at, at, at Yale, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I found out that, yeah, so that Steely Dan had Chevy Chase as their roommate and drummer. And also, I didn't know this, that they're named after the the dildo in William S. Burroughs' Naked Lunch. Yeah. So I so in my in my prep, I learned all this stuff about Steely Dan. And the funny thing is, after I inducted them, we were talking afterwards and they looked at me and they said, do you actually like our music? Because your induction was so academic. And I was like, <laughs> we're nerds. This is that's what we do. Like, you know, like and also Steely Dan's not the most emotional music. Like it, it really does feel and I like Steely Dan quite a lot, but it always felt like music made by robots pretending to be human. Mm. Do people say that about your music? I think they say that about me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but the music I make tends to be much more sort of like wear your heart on your sleeves, incredibly melodic and emotional, where Steely Dan, like listen to the song FM, and it really does feel like there's a there's a borderline robotic, inhuman quality to it. And I don't mean that as a criticism. I think it's really fascinating. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Like they were aspiring toward that sort of almost digital perfection using analog equipment, right? I mean, before drum machines and, you know, before, if you read this guy's book, it, he talks about how their producer basically made the first drum machine for them because mm -hmm. they wanted something that would have a perfect, you know, synchronicity. But I have to push back a little bit on the emotion because like, Deacon Blues is one of the most heart-wrenching, soulful songs ever about a guy who's contemplating suicide, you know? Oh, I'm, I mean, definitely there's emotion there, but like some of the well-known songs like Bodhisattva and like are kind of just like, they're not unemotional. There's an emotion to them, but there's a very lighthearted quality to them, you know? Yeah, there's, a, there's definitely an emotional distance. Yeah, which again goes to them not going on tour, right? Like they didn't want to interact with fans. Yeah. Do you know do you know their song Only a Fool Would Say That? I'm sure I do because in the early 80s I worked in a record store and the man who ran the record store was an obsessive Steely Dan fan. So I think I mean there's certain bands like the Grateful Dead, Steely Dan, who I know so much about without ever actually buying one of their records. Cause I'm just right. working in this record store and hearing these records on, on repeat. Yeah. Well, only a fool would say that is a, sort of a Samba beat. And the song is written as a response to John Lennon's imagine. And they're saying like, you're so not naive, dude. You think imagine a world with nothing, no, you know, religion, no, this, that. you're just a, pampered young rich out of touch idiot to to even propose hmm. that it's it's a really interesting kind of dialogue i i like where musicians respond to one another you know like neil young and leonard skinnard or you know these sort of famous response songs yeah yeah I'm anyway go, go ahead Lindsay. 
oh no i was just saying it's like it's punching up deciding that you're gonna like take on the beatles right you know <laughs> exactly <laughs> except nobody knows that's what the song was like that's a real obscure right. yeah moby i i was reading some interviews with you in in my very semi-nerdy preparation for this um and you said that you had a major goal in life which was to just start walking and with no planning and just see where where you ended up and what happened have you tried this at all well so this involves going way 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 back the year was 1988 and to put it in perspective and context for Lindsay, so George Bush Sr. was president. I was three at the time. Lindsay so. was three at the time. <laughs> and I was living in an abandoned factory in a crack neighborhood. And I was so happy living in my abandoned factory in the crack neighborhood. Despite but I didn't the murders. Have running... There were a few murders there. But I didn't have running water. I didn't have a bathroom. But I had free electricity so I could work on music. I was pulling down the princely sum of around $2,000 a year. And I was also, it was a period in my life when I was an incredibly serious Christian. And I have to qualify that a little bit. I was more sort of in the sort of like Thomas Merton, Kierkegaard vein of like smug academic Christianity. Like, I, you know, I wasn't out burning crosses or <laughs> bombing abortion clinics. So, so I was this very serious Christian and I, in doing Bible study, I thought that I was called as a Christian to give up everything I had, which at that point was very little, and just lock my door and leave and start walking and see what happened. And it got so far as I actually had the, the key in the lock of the door. And somehow I was like, you know what? I can't do it. I can't give up the known for the unknown, even though at that time the known was living, squatting in an abandoned factory in a crack neighborhood, it was still, it was familiar and I had a bed and I just simply couldn't do it. And I do sometimes wonder like what would have happened at that moment if I had actually followed through and just, the idea was to just leave and simply see what happened. Like I have no plan, no money, just go out into the world and see what happened. So, yeah. I did that in my, in my 20s, I hitchhiked from New York to Alaska, and I I had this sort of epiphany in Alaska that I wanted to spend my 20s just going out into the world and seeing what happened. And I gave myself 10 years and said, okay, until I'm 30, no marriage, no med school, no grad school, no commitment, no career, nothing. Just go out and float around the world and see what happens. Is that what you did? Yeah. Well, that's way braver than me. I mean, like I said, I was such a sissy. I couldn't even leave my abandoned factory in the crack neighborhood. I was like, oh, but but I like my little bed that I found in a dumpster. I like my, <laughs> you know, like my walls that we also found in a dumpster. So yeah, I, I was the I was too crippled by my materialism. <laughs> that's funny. I do you ever, have you found it frustrating in, in your life that people assume that you were coming from a wealthy family because of the Herman Melville co connection? I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's a, also, I grew up in Darien, Connecticut, you know, which is one of the most affluent places in the world. 
but my mom and I were on food stamps and welfare. And as I mentioned, I lived, you know, lived in an abandoned factory when I first left home. And yeah, I guess given my sort of inbred waspy pedigree, because I'm related to, to Herman Melville and also Peter Gansevoort, for whom Gansevoort Street is named in New mm. York. So I've got this old waspy pedigree, but like my my waspy ancestors were the guys who like cleaned the bottom of boats and then drank themselves to an early death. So there was never like any great New England type fortune. It was just like a lot of depressed alcoholism. Yeah, yeah, I can relate to that. Not related to anyone famous, but a lot of depressed alcoholics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, Did you know that I'm related to Edgar Allan Poe? You are? He's like my great, great uncle. You're kidding. That's real. I'm just finding this out for that. That's a pretty, I mean, like Melville is good, but Poe is kind of, sorry, Herman, Uncle Herman, but like Poe is a little cooler. I mean, Melville, I'm, I'm proud of my Melville re relation, but like Poe is definitely like the prince of the modern era. Yeah, no, I'm pretty proud. I'm pretty proud of that relation. Wow. Maybe just stay away from opium. <laughs> it is as appealing I, as it is. I mean, I have to say, I don't know anything about sports. The only sports team I have any interest in is the Baltimore Ravens. And I don't even, to be honest, this is my, this is my sad ignorance. I don't even know if that's a baseball or football team, but I just <laughs> love, I just love that there is a sports team who either plays baseball or football named after an Edgar Allan Poe poem. Is that what they're named after? Yeah, they're from Baltimore. They're the Ravens. Isn't that cool? Super Again, cool. Someone could very easily school me as to whether they play baseball or football, but I kind of appreciate my ignorance, so I'd rather not know. <laughs> okay, here's talking about cool sports team names. You lived in Darien, Connecticut. I, I lived in Fairfield for a while, so we've got that in common. The Yukon Huskies. Yeah, I went to Yukon briefly. Okay, why are they called the Huskies? There are no fucking Huskies in Connecticut. It's the Yukon. Um, oh, Yukon. clever. You think wow. that's why? Or maybe yeah. just like the guy in the sports team had a Husky. But you're right, the Yukon Huskies, that is... Wow, I'm learning so much today. Like I'm I'm a Yukon alum and I didn't know that. You are um, a husky and you don't know why. <laughs> do you know why why when I was at Yukon, why everyone said they were called the Huskies? Hmm. It's because basically everyone went to school and like by being living in a dorm, you suddenly had all this free food. So everyone put on 20 pounds the first year. The freshman 15. Yeah. So basically. It was the Yukon Huskies because everyone got fat. Yeah, <laughs> but that's everywhere. So every team would have yeah. to be the Huskies, you know? Yeah. <laughs> okay, another another great Moby quote I came across while I was reading up on you. <laughs> you said, I guess because of years of going to therapy, years of going to 12-step meetings, years of doing interviews, which can be very personal and therapeutic, I have familiarity with taking intimate things and objectifying them somehow. Sure. And <laughs> when I read that, I thought that's a really articulate description of the creative process, right? Yeah. I mean, I guess it's 
it's also it's the creative process. I mean, the utility of creativity can be so many different things to so many different people. What I keep coming up against is that, and maybe this isn't that isn't always the case, but I feel like creativity is a sort of it's there's always a refuge quality to it. Like you're always looking at the world that you're currently in and saying, oh, I don't really like this that much. I want to do better. Like I want to inhabit mm. a different world. And then the question is like, when you start presenting that to other people and sort of inviting them into your quasi utopian creative world. And by utopian, I'm not speaking even qualitatively. I'm just saying like the artist tries to create that some sort of environment that, that they think makes them feel safer or better or more alive than the world that they're currently in so yeah the, the and then the pr the presentation of it is where things start to get really confusing because you're taking true intimacy and sharing it with strangers and it can be it can be disconcerting and you sort of you can almost like decompensate a little bit in the process of presenting your utopian idealized work to a public yeah who you've never met do you think you're going to run into that in the podcast realm as well well you know it's that question of it's and you you mentioned this earlier it's intimacy of people love people love intimacy people you know whether we're whether we are aware of it or not like everyone wants that emotional connection and a podcast like i'm sure you've experienced it because you've been doing this for 10 years where like people you're with people intimately for an hour or more every week and like they start to idealize you and they fall in love with you and they like they and they know you and they actually do yeah. And it's, yeah, I don't know what, if you've had obsessive fans or stalkers. I know Lindsay has, I have. And well, most of my, uh, the, we have a, an email address for the podcast where people can write in questions or responses or whatever. And there are a lot of people with very scary opinions that like to write in. So that's been something weird, but also regarding the intimacy aspect, it's so fascinating because when I'm sitting when we're sitting in Moby's studio and recording and it's just the two of us or or us and one other person you start to forget that anyone else is ever going to hear the conversation yep. and you and I personally will find myself revealing personal details that I would never say in front of a group of people and the intimacy kind of creeps up on you you know where you can't constantly be thinking about where it's going to land so naturally you you would have the same intimacy as you would have if nobody was necessarily going to be there and listening so it's it's a little bit of surprise intimacy whereas when you're creating something like a like a, a song which is incredibly intimate i think you do it with the with the knowledge that it will be performed at some point would you sort of. but i mean again i've had that ex i remember the second time i played the festival glastonbury i was standing on stage in front of 125,000 people playing my song porcelain and at this point it had become a pretty well-known song and so i had 125,000 people sing it back to me 
And I remember I was like, what a weird juxtaposition contrast is because I wrote this by myself late at night in a very monastic hermetic setting. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's, it's out in the world. And it's like, it's really, it is interesting that, that, that long tradition of the sort of, you know, the isolated artist doing something that connects with a lot of people and trying to, to make sense of it that you guys have both experienced as well. So I have a huge favor I have to ask. I have to go pee really quickly. Can you guys talk for like a minute without me? I'm sure you can. I'm not, I'm not, Do we I'm have sure to talk a, about you? No, no, ideally not. Yeah. <laughs> or if you want to, sure. I mean, Lindsay could say like, you know, it's the teacups are filthy, but he also smells well, like a hobo. What is it? Look at that. Uh-oh. Oh, it's a tick. Yeah, hold on. Okay, oh, hold on. Moby and Lindsay are removing a tick from uh -oh. Bagel's head occasionally. Mm -hmm. And also because mm -hmm. he's so sort of like toxic masculinity. I think it's good to have a woman in the studio to really. He's grown up a, a bit. There's an interesting thing he said on that, that Bruce Springsteen said on that podcast, in that interview. I wonder if you guys have any thoughts on it. He said that all the really creative people that he knows had one parent who really, who thought they were the second coming of Jesus and another parent who thought they were shit. And so they've got this, it's almost like a, like a turbine spinning, trying to please the parent who wasn't impressed, fueled by the love and, and admiration of the parent who was. I know in your case, Moby, you were raised by your mother. Is that right? Your father yeah, died. I mean, my dad died when I was two. And I personally grew up, and it's weird, again, going back, like I really don't like to be contradictory to Bruce Springsteen because I hold him in very high regard. But like I grew up in a completely different environment where there's tons of dysfunction in my house and in my family. But everybody in my family was creative in some way mm. you know my un one uncle was a photographer the other uncle was a sculptor both my aunts were writers my great-grandmother taught classical composition my grandmother was a painter my mom was a painter but the interesting thing about growing up in this environment is no one was very successful in fact no one was really successful at all but everyone's work was judged and critiqued fairly like everyone was mm. encouraged but there was no, you were never celebrated just for the act of making something. Like if I, you know, if I was nine years old playing guitar, if I played something well, my mom would say, oh, I like that. And if I played something that wasn't great, she'd be like, man, it's not your best. You know, like, so there was a very rational feedback, like, you know, mm. and it, and I think that there was such a calm aspect to it of like the, the, the assumption that everyone was going to express themselves creatively. Most likely no one would have success with it and that you would be judged fairly and rationally. So it was almost in a way now that I'm, I'm thinking of it for the first time, thinking of it this way, the rest of my life was complete chaos. The rest of my family was chaos. Creativity was like a repository of reason and calm like it was mm -hmm. it was the predictable safe space that's fascinating
And do you think that was part of your motivation to devote your life to that? Yeah, it's like it's the only thing that makes sense to me. Right. You know, well, well, and bagel and hiking. But apart from bagel and hiking, like still like being in my studio working on music, it's the only time things feel okay. So what's what's your deal with fame? Because you seem you seem beyond ambivalent about fame. You almost seem like you want to just blow it all up in some ways. Like your well, your thing about just walking and your memoirs. I mean, I know your first memoir was very well received, and then your second memoir was a shitstorm, from what I've read online. Mm-hmm. Uh, is part of that like fuck this? It's all bullshit anyway. So who cares? Well, it's and I'll try and truncate it because I could I could ramble on about this way too long. I mean, to state the obvious, we live in a culture that glorifies fame. And one could argue that there and, and I'll try and keep this brief because I know that I can go on about this way too long. There's this almost we'll call like an existential subtext to fame, but to almost everything. You know, people are always looking for some sort of existential out something that protects them from the human experience whether that's mm-hmm. fame wealth beauty accomplishment nihilism cynicism religion politics sports teams it's always that like looking for something that will somehow purport to give them meaning and somehow exempt them from the ravages of the human condition and so when i discovered fame or when fame discovered me I embraced it way more enthusiastically than I should admit to. Like I loved fame, but then I found myself getting incredibly depressed and being incredibly anxious and almost being addicted to fame, you know, the attention, the validation. And, and for a while, as I was becoming less famous, I tried to hold on to it. Like sort of that's what the second memoir is sort of about is like that, like battling addiction and like trying to hold on to fame. And then when it finally when I was able to get to what I think is a healthy place regarding my relationship to fame, I suddenly had this appreciation for like the fact that I've experienced fame, but hopefully haven't been too seriously compromised or destroyed by it. So I can have the pers- I can have a perspective on fame having been through it. Right. Because we live in a world where everyone wants to be famous. Everyone thinks fame is going to fix everything. Except look at the evidence. Like you mentioned John Lennon earlier. Like, yeah. I mean, if fame fixed things, let's talk about Amy Winehouse. Let's talk about Ernest Hemingway. Let's talk about Billie Holiday. Let's talk about Kurt John Cobain. Right? Yeah. On and on and on. Like fame the moment someone becomes famous you can kind of knock 30 years off their life expectancy yeah Um, yeah and there's also the idea i I forget who said this but that you stop maturing at the age at which you become famous yeah which explains michael jackson right yeah i mean the, the the idea that you stop maturing when you become famous and also there's an idea that you stop an alcoholic stops maturing the day that they first get drunk you know, because mm. why would you develop other skills when all you need to do is stay drunk and stay famous? And so person, I'm glad I went through it. I hopefully, hopefully have learned things from it. And yeah, I'm really grateful that I went through it and wasn't 
too badly damaged by it. How do you how do you surround yourself with authenticity when you've got that level of fame and money that you know is attracting all sorts of parasites? How do you filter um, them out? Well, part of it is occasionally you make mistakes. You know, there have been times in my life when I've realized like, oh, that person is only here for mercenary reasons. And you just have to say like, okay, you know, they're human. I can't judge them too harshly. And you just, but you move on. It's, it's, it can be depressing when you realize that some people are only there, you know, to have proximity to a degree of fame. But mm -hmm. for me, one of the biggest antidotes, the biggest counterbalance to it is, and I'm going to sound like such a hippie, it's nature. Yeah. You know, it's going into the mountains and going hiking and realizing nature doesn't care. You <laughs> doesn't know, give like, a fuck who you are. Yeah. When you're hiking in the That's mountains it. and there's no evidence of humanity around you and you think to yourself, like, I could be Mick Jagger or a homeless person. I could be Bill Clinton or whomever. Doesn't right now at this moment it doesn't matter. And there's something so that in the indifference of nature I find to be really educational and liberating. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, I agree with that. You said in another interview you were talking about aging honestly, and I thought that was a really beautiful point to make and and that isn't made very often and you said like look at neil young i don't know if you mentioned springsteen or but you you were like you know these pop stars who are trying to deny the process of aging are making a huge mistake and in the same interview you said i gave up thoughts of being relevant a long time ago is is all this like letting go of fame and spending time in nature and sort of bringing everything back to ground zero part of like a mental health program? I mean, yeah, and I'd, I'd love to hear Lindsay's perspective, because like, for example, I can be a bit cavalier about aging and losing youthful beauty because I was never all that young or beautiful to begin with, <laughs> you know. Like you were never like, young? What happened? <laughs> I, I feel like I was like a middle-aged anxiety, like <laughs> an anxious middle-aged person, even when I was six. So, <laughs> And um, you're not Jewish, huh? It's really interesting. You know, sadly, most of, okay, happily, most of my family is Jewish. Sadly, um, I am not. Like, uh, and I, it really, <laughs> I did 23 in me, and I have one Jewish ancestor from about 100, 200 years ago. And I wish I... I really, yeah. Lindsay's, Lindsay's, I think, is now decided that she's Jewish. I have no proof of this, and I don't really want to do a 23andMe, but it's my firmly held belief are. that I am. Yeah. You just feel it because you named your dog Bagel or what? <laughs> yeah, I would say, yeah, I would say culturally, yes. Yes. As far as, as far as I can tell, it does, I do not make sense as a Roman Catholic. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. And also, like, the Lindsay looks like, as I said, the people in my family are all Ashkenazi Jews, and Lindsay looks like she could be related to them, going back to your earlier comment about us being cousins. Right, <laughs> right. Um, but what I would say is, about aging, about that is, it's the simple 
and I'll try and truncate this a little bit. When I got sober, I realized the cornerstone of sobriety is a willingness to look at evidence, you know, and to not ex- to not ignore evidence or pretend that it's pretend that evidence is something it isn't. Mm. And once you start doing that, you start looking at evidence all around you. And one thing, there's so much evidence supporting the idea that people who unnaturally unhealthily hold on to youth and beauty it doesn't do them any favors you know the bad plastic surgery the the hair implants the all that stuff like it never it never works but people keep doing it yeah i've seen some incredible hair plugs in my day i I'm shocked okay. what hair what hair science has been i take it to. back a friend of mine in new york <laughs> had that hair that, that like hair plug thing done to him and it worked and i was like wow like i wanted to be so i just wanted to ridicule you and your fake hair but like it looks great i don't want to do it but i okay so i take it back hair okay so hair plugs some of it's work. good some plastic yeah. surgery is not bad but i think that any attachment to an outcome and trying to force it is not good i think the minute you start trying to control the world around you too much it's gonna backfire somehow maybe not explosively but there's repercussions for attempts at control i think that aren't aren't always the best i'm gonna remember that the next time we take a picture and you don't like the way you look oh yeah no i also (laughs) but also at the same time and uh, like i there are so many times when we'll take a a photo and i'll be like nope the world will never see that So that's me trying yeah. to control to control an image outcome as well. I don't think and but you know, I also am still trying to figure out Moby has a bazillion images of him and I have like four. You know? Bagel has also a bazillion on her Instagram. I think you should use an, an image of you from your musical theater days. I've been told by by several gay friends of mine that I'm gay in everything except my disdain for musical theater and and cock, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's a disdain. Well, I don't disdain cock. I do disdain musical theater. I'm I'm indifferent to cock. That's okay. I understand. It's a very it's an alienating art form. I think I can't. I could never suspend disbelief you know like the the idea that people are having a serious conversation and then suddenly they break out into song and dance and then go back to their conversation it was just like are you fucking kidding me well and and on one hand i can relate because i even though i'm a straight wasp i feel way more comfortable in like the world of gay culture and jewish culture like i know when jewish holidays are i don't know when waspy holidays are I don't know straight culture at all. Like I don't know anything about sports, but of my own free will, I've seen all the sex in the city movies. So, but musical theater. Okay. So one exception that I think you might really enjoy is the first South Park movie. Wait, is that America? Fuck. Yeah. No, it was South Park, bigger, longer, uncut. Oh, I think I might've seen that because that's already absurd. So I, I can, Book of I can Mormon, go there. Those, those same guys, Matt and Trey, when they wrote Book of yeah. Mormon, like, so I'm just wondering if like, because I'm, I don't obsess and love musical theater to the extent that Andy <laughs> does, but I also 
a lot of it I really, really like. But maybe maybe introduce yourself to musical theater through South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Cut, because it's phenomenal musical theater. It's also incredibly funny. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's already, you're already in the land of the absurd with these cartoon cutouts and all that, right? It's not, yeah. that the juxtaposition of take this seriously as drama with now we're going to do a song and dance routine, that's that's the thing that trips me up. So if we're already in a cartoon, then yeah, you're right. I can probably... I can roll with that. Yeah. I will say one of the saddest things about about regular human existence is the inability to break out into song when you're having a strong feeling. <laughs> yeah. It honestly makes my life a lot harder that I can't just like suddenly have like a guy on a piano behind me. Yeah, but you and have like a like an eleven o'clock kind of. I feel you've like got, I feel like you've got Moby right there. Challenge. Like <laughs> you need to start like. When you're having feelings, just start to break into song. There's no one will stop you. <laughs> I think they might actually stop me. <laughs> I mean, some places, like if you're in line at the TSA, perhaps. But yeah, but like she- like that James Corden thing where they're in the car, carpool karaoke. You could just yeah. do walking karaoke. Yeah, but it's not karaoke. It's off the cuff, oh. just pure raw emotion. Oh, so you're not even singing someone else's song. You're just coming up with it organically. Like in a musical, you know? Wow. Mm-hmm. Very impressive. Yeah. All right. yeah. We'll <laughs> see. Right. We'll see. I'll go. Hey, that, that'll be the Lindsay pod. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, guys, listen, we've, we've way overstayed my welcome here. I appreciate you letting me into your your back porch and your medical procedures. This has been a real experience. Yeah, Be- Bagel and I and Lindsay, we thank you for your forbearance around Operation Tickgate 2023. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Die one 
what's a big deal if you want to be free say what you want to feel spend the night with me i'm gonna take you up in my arms and if we must go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground